0: Water. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 with me, if you would. Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 32. Acts chapter 2. you made your way there. Let's uh, pause and pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, whose name we hail and celebrate today. And Lord, I pray that our joy Our hope would be to do that for all eternity. And so, Lord, we bring you thanks and we bring you praise. Lord, and we bring before you also unclean hands and lips and hearts. And we know with confidence through Jesus that you will forgive us our sins if we are faithful to confess them to you. And so, Lord, we're doing that before you now, each one of us is Acknowledging the ways that we have fallen short in our being, in our unbelief, in our devotion, in our zeal, in our thoughts, in our words, in the meditations of our hearts, Lord, and I thank you that you have purchased life for us, that you have bestowed upon us your spirit as a down payment, as a seal, that, Lord, we are able to receive such good things from you because your spirit's at work within us and within our brothers and sisters. And so now, Lord, as that spirit's at work, I pray that you would bring to the forefront of our hearts and our minds the great joy, celebration, and reason why we exist, why we live in hope, and the anticipation, Lord, that drives us, forward in this life, in this darkness, why it drives us forward in the battle against our sin, Lord, you have won the victory, you have done it, you have accomplished, you have made that known to us, give us great peace in this hour, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We go to Acts chapter 2 today, because as great as it is to reflect on and meditate on and glory in the actual resurrection accounts which we should always do it's it's good to hear this first proclaimed hear the early church and some of their first words proclaim this is the reason why they exist this is the reason why all men and women and children should pay attention to this Jesus from Nazareth this is the reason why they stand before them today um, somewhat fearless of of what would befall them when before we saw just a short time earlier at Jesus' arrest they are scattered but after his resurrection they are filled with all boldness and filled with the Spirit and more than ready to stand before nations and crowds and kings and, and emperors And proclaim this truth, this gospel which brought Jesus to the cross. So it's good to hear the genesis of our foundations. It's good to hear what first happened with the church. And it's all based on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. Everything. That we do everything that we know, everything that we say, everything that we hope in. And we're going through this uh, series in First Thessalonians right now. Everything that is used to encourage one another is based on the fact that there was an empty tomb on that first day of the week. The reason even why we meet on a Sunday is in light of the fact that we are a, a, a church of the resurrection, so to speak. We are a people who exist. Uh, with all of our faith and all of our trust built on this Jesus who his sacrifice being vindicated was raised from the tomb as a sort of first fruits for us who are awaiting that sort of vindication and resurrection for our own bodies that we may meet him in the air that we may come in to his great city in celebration and that we may live there dwell there not to be scattered not to be shattered not to have any tears befall us or any evil come and overshadow us, nor the wrath of God abide there, but we are to enter in this city as an eternal celebration and dwelling place with our Lord. All of that is because he lives. Jesus, in fact, the last week that he was alive, was making this point very clear when some of the Pharisees and uh, people from the Sanhedrin and Sadducees, everybody wanted to get their last Biden, their last challenge and their last jab and they wanted to be the ones who were going to silence him and make him look like a fool and and take away all his following and all this fame that he had accrued through all of his power and his word and his grace and his majesty and so they try and corner him with these um, references to scripture like he doesn't know what he's talking about or that he's the one who didn't even utter or complete those things and And he retorts back to them at one point, referencing the fact that God is a God of the living. And he's talking to the Sadducees at that instance, and he is making sure that they understand that from the beginning, God has been a God who's about the resurrection. God is a God who has been always showing us and revealing to us that he can take dead, lifeless bodies, even those that don't have skin on them or or breath in them, and he can put all of that on. And he can create a people for his own name that praise him and glorify him, that follow him and worship him, that in their very existence proclaim the excellencies of the sovereign Lord. And when Jesus does this with them, when he brings these things to mind, they know those things are there and they know those things are true. And so all of their presuppositions and all the things that they had wanted to believe or made up to believe so that they can be important and so that they can be gods over their own religious sphere has come tumbling down because Jesus goes back to the truth, goes back to the reality that is the word of God. And so when Peter begins to speak that first sermon that we hear from the early church on that day of Pentecost, when he begins to speak, what he's going to do is he's going to bring us back again to the word to reassure us that God has, uh, Foresaid and foreordained these things to take place, and therefore, God has also accomplished what they were intended for. It's interesting to note that before the resurrection, and even shortly after, nobody really ever understood when Jesus would reference his forthcoming death and resurrection. Nobody got it. Even though we have it in the scriptures, they had it in the scriptures, it's perfectly clear that even Paul tells Timothy that you have been acquainted with the ancient scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation. From childhood, Timothy, you've known these things. The Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ specifically, Paul says, because there you have the death, the atonement for sin for a nation to make many unrighteous righteous. And you also have life that has to continue and exist in that one who gave his life. It's there. It's all there. And and so when when Peter begins to speak, he speaks to the men of Israel. He speaks to this nation to to which belong the prophets and the law. And they're supposed to know this. And so he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Hear what I'm going to remind you of. Hear what we're going to bring to light. Satan's job is to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways he does that is that when they're reading their Old Testament scriptures or scrolls, they are disregarding places like Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah, all these places that foretell what this anointed one, this Messiah, is going to do. Even to this day, in the temple readings of, of the Jewish people, Isaiah 53 is not on the calendar. Coincidence? No. No. It's Satan at work, blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from understanding that from the very beginning, even before the foundations of the world, God had planned to give his son for a people who were going to give him disobedience and rebellion and evil. But yet we are to understand that he reigns supreme over all that. And that he moves and ordains even the evil acts that we choose to do for his purposes. What greater God is there to have ultimate trust and faith in than the one God who can do that, who can reign over all the ugliness in the world, foremost seen when people are able to nail Jesus to a cross or whip whip him and rip the skin from his flesh, a God that can cause that to work for the ultimate good uh, for all eternity, for all his people. Why can we not have ultimate faith and trust in a God like that? And that is what they always proclaim. That's what these apostles always proclaim, that God is sovereign and men are evil. And that sovereignty trumps that evil and it, and it makes it do something for his will. It's amazing. It's it's. It's a reality that I will constantly and consistently preach because it is a reality that gives us the ultimate confidence in a God who can save, who can heal and redeem and renew. And this is how he does it. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. It is one thing to deny what's written. It's another thing to deny what's happening before your very eyes. And I've always found it interesting that in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what is the response of the religious elite or leaders of Israel of that day? The response is to, is to take a, a, a straight line into a plot of how to kill him. And we're left with minds blown because you have somebody with the ability to give life and you want him dead. Is it all of life somewhat about self-preservation? And if, you, if you've met somebody who can greatly contribute to that, why do you want him dead? It's the same reason that we... Have before or people even now deny Christ? It's it's the Romans one reality of our sinful hearts. We see we see His acts. We see the created world. We have plenty of evidence that this didn't come from nowhere. That somebody intricately and intelligently and with all power put this together and made it all work, and made it all revolve, and, 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 and sustains it, makes it stay where it is, keeps it in place, makes it keep going. And yet we still deny, because the implications of such a being are terrifying to enemies of his, which by nature we are. So we want to shun that, we want to push that away, we want to bury that we want to say no that's not that can't be because if that is then I am a dead man because I'm not like him I'm not holy I'm not good I'm not righteous I have things that I want to do that don't line up according to what he wants done or to what he demands simply by the fact that he exists and so therefore I'd rather have my thing not his thing, so I'm going to go do my thing, Adam and Eve. This is the sin that always befalls us. We don't, it's not that we can't see enough to believe. It's that like we don't want to believe. And when you get to Romans 3, that, that's the reality that's becoming perfectly clear. That's how he prefaces uh, what God decided to do with Jesus on the cross, is that he says, look, no one's righteous, not one. And then he says, no one seeks God. That's a quote from, I believe, Psalm 118. No one seeks God. (laughs) Because if we seek God, then he's the authority figure. And we're the indicted ones. We're we're the ones that are in trouble. But that that never allows you to see the second half of this truth. Yeah, he is all those things. And yeah, you are all those things. But God is rich in what? Mercy. Grace. He has wrath for sin. But he saves you from his own wrath by having Jesus take it. That was Good Friday. And then we get to Sunday and we see that that wrath was appeased, satisfied. And we got to get there in the gospel. We have to get there. He was attested to them. They know that. They saw that these signs, these wonders, these mighty works, uh, never been done before in the history of the world. And here they're happening before their very eyes. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the first truth. God planned this. Definitely. It's not an accident. It's not like a man. Jesus is really stirring up some stuff and he's going to get himself killed. I better figure out a way around this. That's not how God works. No, he knows. He knows from before the foundation of the world that he is going to slay his son. And what's he go ahead and do? Create the world. This is one of the great realities of God. Is he knows what it costs him to do this thing. So let's do it. Why? Because he wants to make known to the world his riches in grace and mercy. He wants to be praised for who he is. It is his most natural state to be loving and gracious and mercy. That's how he existed from from, forever. He's always been in complete unison with the Trinity in love and in joy and in peace. Those are the things that characterized everything before he created this. Created beings that would become inventors of evil. It's not that God didn't know what evil was. It's the opposite of what he is. And he invented people or created people who are going to do the opposite of what he is. What he does. And then he's going to go down to them and he's going to give his son into their sinful, grimy hands. He's going to allow them to be Shamed on this tree he's going to allow people to look upon him as a curse and he's also going to hand him a cup full of wrath to drink and he's going to purchase these sinners and what's going to happen we're going to be saved and we're going to Proclaim his awesomeness and majesty and glory for all time. And you know why all that works? Because he's worthy of that. He's not going to create a world just to destroy everybody in it because he likes to play around in his wrath. No, he would rather. He would rather. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel tells us, he would rather mercy and grace befall the world than his wrath. So he creates. And he sends Jesus. And Jesus comes and he does these things. And he's delivered up for our salvation. And then here's the second truth. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the Roman soldiers They put the nails in. They flogged his body. The Pharisees and the Jewish people called for that to happen to him. But God ordained that that would take place. By nature, these people are going to want to do that. By nature, we're going to want to reject God. By nature, we're going to want to kill and rid ourselves of anything that presents this awful truth that we are guilty before a holy God. And so they're going to do that. That's what we would choose to do by nature. But God is going to reign all over that and make that work for his good. It puts puts Satan in a new light, doesn't it? Like a dog on a leash. He cannot do anything that God has not ordained to work according uh, to his will for good. He can't. cannot even sin in a way that would not work according to his will we are depraved or bad or evil enough in our hearts that we have uh, one for ourselves eternal separation from God apart from Jesus but we are not as bad as we could be Now, here's here's why we're here. Here's why we're here every single week. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's not possible because he's greater than that. Because he's a God of the living. And he cannot ultimately die or be separated from himself. He has to live. And Jesus, even as a man, has won eternal life by his righteousness. He has defeated death by the perfect obedience to God. By the reward of of eternal life. Death can't hold him. And I love that phrase. It's it's not possible for him to be held by it. But in fact, he is the very one who's going to reign over it. And he's displayed that in his earthly ministry. that, That death is temporary and it has to obey his will. And his will here is that it cannot hold him. Because if Jesus is God and if death were to hold him, then God would be separated from himself, which is literally impossible. Plus, Jesus doesn't deserve it in no way, shape, or form. He's the only being who's ever existed who who it it is not right for him to remain dead, for him to not live. And he understands this going to the cross. He understands the glory that's set before him. He understands what he's won. He understands the victory, even before it it comes to light on the third day, he understands that resurrection is rightfully his, and as it's rightfully his, he's going to pass that down to those whose debt he paid on the cross and make it rightfully yours. So now Peter's going to go into Psalm 16. And he's going to remind the men of Israel who should know this. about how this was already proclaimed, that David, looking forward, saw these things and proclaimed this. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your... Presence. Now let me go on and read while Peter explains what, who David is so we can go back and explain this psalm. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. If you go back up into this reference to Psalm 16 in Acts 2, 27, that reference says David is prophesying this you will not abandon my soul to Hades which is the abode of the dead at that time or let your holy one see corruption. you know what corruption is in the ancient world it's the reason why uh, the women went early to the tomb that Easter morning with spices because the body would begin to decay especially when they've been ripped open like Jesus body decay was coming fast and that's what they called corruption. It was a breakdown of the human flesh. And then a year later, they would come collect the bones and they would have what they would call a funeral. So if David and and Peter comments here, if David's tomb is with us to this day, in other words, where he was buried and where he saw corruption, where his bones uh, were lying. If that's with us to this day, then this David can't be speaking about himself. Namely, in the fact that in verse 27, he says, your holy one. Nobody can be characterized as holy but who? God. What do they say about him in heaven? Holy, holy, holy. Nobody is holy but him. So therefore, Psalm 16 is prophecy about Jesus. Who's going to die, but who's going to live? That's what Psalm sixteen is. It can't be David, and he's—you—you—you you, you have to imagine that—that that some of these Jews are hearing this explained for the first time in light of the uh, Messiah Jesus, in light of his resurrection, and by the Spirit, their minds are just blown up. Just. How could I not see this? And you know that from some of those revelations, there is deep repentance. We killed him. We profaned him. We stripped him naked and ripped the flesh from his body. The Holy One. You, you can almost picture the scenes that we always have of repentance in the Bible, the, the tearing of their clothes, the sackcloth and ashes. The, they would even rub their lips as they feel like they're people of unclean lips, rub them raw to their bleeding and cracked open because they're so unclean. You see those visible manifestations when people are hearing this for the first time. You want that kind of repentance. We want people to feel the weight of their sin because it's real. It's not a, mani- it's, it's not a manipulative tool to get people to, to believe this. It's real. And they had that, that real picture in front of them. They had a real Jesus from Nazareth who was really crucified. Which makes them know their sin is real. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about, this is David foreseeing and speaking about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses a witness is somebody who testifies under oath that the very thing they saw is the truth. What they saw was a fulfillment of all of their scriptures. A thousand years worth. What they saw was a living breathing human being with the scars of the, of the crucifixion that he went through. Living, breathing, talking, communicating, eating, glorified. What they saw was God making good on a promise. First to his holy one, Jesus. And then to us that he would make the many righteous through the righteous one. What they saw was grace, power of God, and it cannot be denied. And notice that Peter calls them all to the stand. He, so far, the people he's talking to aren't believers. And he indicts them all as witnesses. In other words, this is going to be a real long court case because we're going to have all you up on the stand and you're all going to have to say what you all saw. You saw him. And you can't deny it and we can't deny it. So what does that mean? What's that mean if there's an empty tomb? What's that mean for you? That means that what God said was true and what God says is true and you have mercy and grace offered to you today to a God who would rather see you living in that grace and mercy than living under his wrath and Jesus was more than willing to pay that for you and so At the end of that sermon, the people respond, what do we do? What must we do to be saved? And Peter gives this simple response, repent and believe. And so I give that to you today. Pray that you would respond to God, repent and believe, and then we'll stand and we'll sing together.